0: Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 19 this morning. We're going to look at chapter 19 verses 6 all the way through verse 9. So let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's word as we acknowledge that God's word is inspired. It is inerrant. It is the infallible word of the true and living God. Let's listen now. Revelation 19, verse 6 and following. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. Well, the, uh, the Everhard house is in full wedding preparation mode. You've probably heard the good news that my oldest, Soraya, is engaged to be married next June. I have to tell you, we are thrilled about this. We love Tom. He's a wonderful young man. Uh, So, everything around the table right now is DJs and dresses and cakes and counseling. That's what we're talking about all the time. There is something in the mood here at Gospel Fellowship, Uh, there is romance in the room. even this morning. I'm, I'm aware of uh, about four weddings that are coming up in just the next four months. So we're going to be doing a lot, of, a lot of weddings here at Gospel Fellowship. I take that to be a great joy. I love doing weddings. Uh, you love to attend weddings as I do. There's something especially joyful about weddings. It's one of the times where our culture, we still get together and truly have real celebrations. We gather together as families and as the people of God, and we sing together, uh, we dance together, we feast together, we have a ceremony, it's a wonderful time. There's something very beautiful about a wedding, and it is, of course, this, and even, even those who don't know Christ, they long to look into this great mystery of what happens at a wedding uh, ceremony. It is really, if you think about it, an enacted parable of the love of Christ And his bride. That's what we're doing when we do a wedding. I'm not sure if you've ever picked up on this before, but the reason that the father traditionally walks his bride down the aisle to the groom is because we're reenacting that scene in Genesis chapter 2 when God himself brings Eve to the man. That's what we're doing. And the reason that we still to this day have white wedding dresses is because we are acting out this parable of, again, Christ's love for his pure bride. And we even see the whiteness of the bride's dress here in our text this morning. So that's why weddings are so joyful. They are, as I said, a reenacted parable of the love of Christ for his church. And this is a dominant theme throughout the Bible that God loves his people. Uh, We read it already in the book of Isaiah. We're reading it here this morning in uh, Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Scripture is replete with this kind of imagery, this kind of typology. Think back, if you will, with me. Uh, to several of the places in scripture where God's love is made manifest like something like a groom and his bride. We think of the entire book of Song of Solomon, which is a book about Christ's love for his bride. We have the book of Hosea, which although the bride depicted there is is unfaithful in some sense, as Hosea has to marry Gomer, who is an unfaithful woman, yet it's God's recapturing love that redeems that story, the whole book of Hosea. We have all of the marriage and wedding parables of the Lord Christ himself, his first miracle taking place at the wedding of Cana. We have, of course, very direct teachings on this in the form of Ephesians chapter 5, a beautiful text about Christ's love for the church. And even as the Bible begins with a wedding scene, again in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve, so also it ends here in Revelation 19 with this beautiful scene of the wedding scene, the wedding supper of the Lamb of God with his chosen one, his bride, his beloved. So we're going to look at that this morning. I'm excited to do so just because love and romance and marriage is in the air here at Gospel Fellowship and even the Everhard home. I've I'm, I'm been excited to get into this passage. Let's look a little bit at the context here before we jump into the main points. I just want to remind you that we are Uh, Looking at four hallelujahs which take place in the beginning half of Revelation chapter 19. Now we looked at three of those last week. These hallelujahs being shouted out with joy and song from the elect of God in heaven. And we even saw Christ himself speak out last week in chapter 19 verse 5. When he is the one who from the throne says praise our God all you his servants who fear him small and great. So this morning we're looking at this fourth hallelujah In this passage. And next week, when we come back together, John is going to give just a little bit of a vignette about his own uh, experience here. Now, John is largely, he's kind of a side figure in the story. He only comes in as an aside from time to time. Much of the book of Revelation is what he sees and hears, respective to the judgment of God and Christ's coming again. As well as the suffering of the church, even in this age. But notice here that uh, next week we're going to see this little vignette about how John himself almost makes a very big mistake, but we're going to get there when we get there. Pastor David is going to cover that next week, Lord willing. But even in chapter 19, we still have a, quite a bit of work to do. As a following after that, we're going to see the rider on the white horse, another depiction of the return of Christ. And then then uh, it only gets more wonderful from there as in chapter 20 we're going to be looking at that very controverted passage related to the thousand years the millennial text will have a lot to say about that and then we just continue to look into the joys and beauties of heaven itself in chapter 21 and chapter two, 22 so that's where we're going in the next few weeks this morning though we're going to look at this wedding supper of the lamb i have three things to say to you this morning by way of observation on this text number one We're going to be looking at the joy of this wedding ceremony. Number two, we're going to look at the parties uh, pertaining to in this wedding. And then third, we're going to consider the invitations to the wedding itself. And I will be, I I hope, uh, issuing to you an invitation to this very wedding supper itself at the close of the message. So, Bible's open. Let's work through this together. Revelation 19. First of all, let's observe in verse 6 the joy of the wedding. The joy of the wedding. Again, verse 6. Then I heard... What seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. So uh, as I've mentioned, the first half of 19 is largely auditory revelations. These are things that John hears, which is why he's hearing with his ears, or at least the ears of his mind, he's hearing these hallelujahs, he's hearing these songs uh, the second portion, of course, in 19, he's going to see things in the return of Christ on uh, the rider of the, the white horse here. But, but here is something he hears, and it's a rather loud sound that he hears on this occasion. Notice that he says, what does he say it sounds like? He says, well, it's like something like mighty waters or many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. Now, that's kind of a an auditory image that he refers to several times in the book. Three times he talks about the sound of mighty waters. Five times he compares things to the peals of mighty thunder. Now, when I was a child, one of the loudest noises I ever heard was the peal of thunder. I remember the day I was probably five, six, seven years old, and we were over at my cousin's house, and a lightning bolt hits a huge oak tree that was probably just 30 or so feet from the house. And as a child, I remember, it's the loudest sound I've ever heard in my entire life. And it was so loud when the lightning hit that oak tree that, it, that the house literally shook. And as a five, six, seven-year-old kid, I felt like my feet actually came off of the ground, and I'm pretty sure that they actually did. I still feel that. We went outside to see what had happened, and the lightning bolt had actually split that great big oak tree. It was kind of on the top of the hill. And as I recall, that tree had been hit multiple times, but this time the lightning bolt split that tree just right down the middle, and it fell into the yard. Loudest sound I ever heard. And what John is saying here, the auditory metaphor that he's giving is like many mighty peals of thunder. And what is he hearing, though? Is it actual thunder? No. What he's hearing is the saints this great multitude that we've looked at multiple times, crying out. Now, normally when you hear somebody and they are crying with this kind of loud voice, very often, unfortunately, it's a cry of pain or it's a cry of sorrow or it's a cry of agony. Sometimes when we use our loudest voice, um, it's because we're terrified or we're afraid or something has gone dreadfully wrong. But here, none of that is relevant to this scene. There is no sense in which these loud voices are crying out in any kind of of pain or sorrow. But this is a joyful, a rejoicing cry that we're hearing here in this text. Okay, And so why are they crying out with, with such loud voices? Well, you would cry out too, wouldn't you? If you knew for a fact that your sin was gone and your guilt was atoned for, and that the righteousness of Christ had been imputed to you, if you knew for a fact that the devil's hold on your life had been broken, yes, and that the unbelieving world had been set aside as it has been set aside back in the previous chapter, Revelation chapter 18, notice what they're crying out here with this loud voice. Look again at verse 6 in your Bible. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, present tense, you see that? Verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Now there is no logical reason why there is anything different there between the states of the joy that they have in heaven and the same exact certainties that you have even right now as a Christian believer. Is anything in verse 6 not true for you right now? No, it's, it's entirely true. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Okay, Everything that they're rejoicing about is also true for you. In fact, joy is supposed to be, and I trust it is in your life, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, Galatians 5.22, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You have those things in Christ. Okay, Now, the only thing that I would say is maybe even a little bit different between your life, Christian, And what they are rejoicing about here at the marriage supper of the Lamb is that in some sense we might say that while we are uh, experiencing now the promises of all of these things, though they're sure and true, yet here perhaps they may be experiencing them in their fulfillment. But other than that, there is no difference between the joy that you have and the joy that they have then. Uh, It's only the distinction between the present and the future, between the distinction between the promise and the fulfillment. Other than that... You have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3, and there is nothing that God has held back from you that you might even now have the same joy that these saints will have then depicted at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Is that right? Am I wrong about that? I don't think so. This is that distinction that theologians sometimes call the already not yet, of the kingdom of God. There's a sense in which it's already true for you. You already have this. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Your sins have already been put away. You are already justified in Christ. If indeed you are standing in a position of grace right now, I trust you are. And yet there's a sense in which we're longing for these things. So there's the already and the not yet of the kingdom But there must be, there should be, there ought to be something in your heart that differentiates the kind of joy that you have in Christ from the kinds of material happiness that unbelievers have. Is that right? Do you have a different category of joy than the unbelievers? I I certainly hope you do. I certainly trust that that's true for you. And we've talked about this before. But what is the difference then between joy and happiness. Do you know? Well, sometimes we use the words interchangeably, and so I wouldn't be offended if somebody interposed the word joy and they meant happiness or something like that. But what is the difference between joy and happiness? Well, happiness is, of course, circumstantial. Happiness is the joy of the unbelievers. Uh, happiness is that which is had or obtained because circumstances are right for you, all things in the world, at the given moment. But what's the problem with happiness? Well, Sometimes it dissipates very quickly, doesn't it? Uh, the world has a different kind of happiness. If you look out and you see happy people in your life, you have to ask, well, what's the source of that? Is it eternal? Is it temporary? Is it circumstantial? Is your happiness built on, on uh, things or possessions or sex or wine or, or parties or anything like that? Well, if it is, then it can easily be taken away from you very, very quickly. But if your joy, and joy I think is that which is eternal, if your joy is rooted in the gospel itself, if your joy is in things like salvation and peace and worship and the unity that we have in Christ, then that is something that cannot be wrenched from your Holy Spirit fingers because what you have is a lasting kind of joy. And so, yes, there better be. There had better be a categorically distinct kind of joy that we're experiencing as Christians, again, from the temporary happiness of the things of this world. Now, does that mean that every Christian should be joyful? Well, yeah, it probably should, but that doesn't mean that you're supposed to be glib and just kind of like superficially, superficially emotionally happy all the time. It doesn't really work that way. You know why? Because this world is filled with pain, and we all know that. Um, we, we, we mentioned just a moment ago in our pastoral prayer about a family here in our area goes to one of our local schools that just lost their son in a tragic accident. And some of you know the circumstances of this story that I'm telling you. Uh, this world is a world that is filled with deep pain and real sorrows, and I don't want anything that I say this morning to, to just try to gloss over that. There is real pain in this world. And so what we're looking for in Christ is not some kind of sustainable circumstantial happiness because I'm sorry to tell you that that's not really realistic in this life. There are are real pains. Heart-level agonies. Right? And so I'm not asking anybody to fake it here in terms of your emotional state. You don't have to do that as a believer. Praise God. But there is something real about the eternal kinds of joy that we have here in Christ. And it's only too sorry that so many Christians, what do they do? They walk around grumpy and filled with anxiety all the time. There's something wrong with that. Like again, I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm not ever asking you to fake your emotional state. But it is sorry, it is all too sorry, I think, that so many Christians walk around in a perpetual state of being exhausted, Uh, feeling defeated, uh, looking like they're anxious on their face all the time, deep frown lines on their spiritual faces, irritable, annoyed. Is that you? Shouldn't be. Like again, it's, it's not that we have happiness or joy all the time, but there should be some kind of a Christian default mode in which our hearts are set on the higher things that can't be taken away from us, even in our deepest sense of loss. Christians are supposed to be agents of joy in this world. Agents of joy. What do I mean by that? Well, you're supposed to be bringing some kind of eternal perspective to your circumstances. Do you? Agents of joy. The unsaved, I think, might take the Gospel more seriously if we were more serious about our joy. Just run a hypothetical with me for a moment. Just entertain this thought. If if you were... If you had 20% more joy in your life, just 20% more joy, do you think that would make a difference in the way that you come off to people around you? Is that possible? If you, if you had 20% more just understanding of the eternal joys that we have experienced here in Revelation 19, would that make a difference in the way that people perceive you in your natural relationships with others? I think it would. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter 3.15. Now, you probably know this, but let me drive this home. Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Did you hear what he just said? Okay. Okay. there's an expectation that people would look at your life and actually come to you and ask you for the reason of the hope that you have. (laughs) Question, has that ever happened to you once? Has anyone ever come up to you and said, there's something different about you, what is it? Like just a random stranger, and maybe it's the way that you talk, maybe it's the way you engage with the students in your classroom, maybe it's the way that you treat your other co-workers or your employees but has anyone ever once in your entire life come up to you and said you know joe bill tom there's something different about you would you please explain to me exactly what that is because i'm just not sure why you have what you have has that ever happened if that's never happened to you in your life you might you might well uh wonder what it is about you what are you conveying or to say it a different way what are you not conveying that people don't ask you that question okay joy should be the default mode of christians we are to be agents of joy in this world why should we be agents of joy because we have everything in this in this life no because we have everything in the next life nothing good has god withheld from you in christ jesus you have every spiritual blessing in christ okay now this is a total aside but have you ever, total aside here, have you ever heard of the debate about Christian apologetics? Is this familiar to you? If, if it's not, come to Wednesday nights. This is the, thing, the kind of thing we talk about on Wednesday nights. We take it to the next level in terms of our doctrine. But there is a debate, even in Reformed churches, about how best to carry out the work of apologetics. Well, what is apologetics? Well, apologetics is your defense of the faith to an unbelieving world. It's the word that, that Peter just used in that text when he said, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so that's your apologia to the world. Now here's the debate amongst even Reformed Christians. This is an in-house, intramural debate amongst those who love Jesus and are Reformed in their doctrines. Okay, so you can't get too feisty with this, but we do talk about these things. On one side, you've got like, this evidentialist camp, and that would be people like John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul. And you never bet against Sproul, by the way. He's really good, right? Especially around here, western Pennsylvania. Sproul was an evidentialist, and his conjecture was that the best way to defend the reasonableness of the Christian faith is by establishing its veracity by use of argumentation, historical data, clear logic, objective reasoning, etc. And Sproul and Gerstner and others, they were convinced that if an unbeliever could at least be objective and have a real conversation with you, then you could establish the validity of the Christian faith. Okay, that's evidentialism. Now there's a whole other camp called presuppositionalism, and you don't need to remember this necessarily. But other great reform theologians—Cornelius Van Til, Francis Schaeffer, John Frame, Greg Bonson—they always said, "No, you can't do that. It's impossible because the unbeliever's heart is not is never going to be objective, and so you you can never prove it to anybody by means of rational proofs or objective analysis. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, and so." The evidentialists, they go back and forth with the presuppositionalists. Now, my goal this morning is not to try to convince you of either party. You can get interested in that debate if you, if you want to be. However, I would say this. I wish that either side of the debate would talk a little bit more about the apologetic power of joy. So where am I in this? I'm a joyist. Okay? I'm a little bit evidential. I'm a little bit presuppositional but I'm a joyist when it comes to my apologia because there should be a sense in you, believer, in which you are an agent of joy such that unbelievers are actually kind of taken aback a little bit and they're like, what's up with that guy? What is into him? What is into us is the joy that is described here in Revelation 19 because we long for the marriage supper. In fact, we can smell the food cooking already. Okay? Our mouths are already watering for the joy of this supper. That's what's into us. That's at least part of our apologia to the unbelieving world. Okay, now secondly, let's shift gears here. Let's look at the parties of this wedding here. This is a beautiful text. It really is. This is a beautiful wedding text here. And we have the parties of the marriage described. Look at verse, what is it? Verse 7, right? Yes. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So there's the parties, okay? Every, every wedding, as you know, has a wedding party. Um, the main <clears throat> participants are the groom and the bride and they're established here in this text. He's described here as a lamb, which I admit to you is a bit of a mixed metaphor. We have lamb metaphor being intermingled here with a marriage metaphor that is a bit of a mixed metaphor, uh, but we know who the Lamb is. Who is the Lamb? Gospel fellowship, it's Christ. And we know that very easily from the book of Revelation because throughout Revelation, uh, John has described Christ as the Lamb. We are told uh, that he is the one who is slain but is alive in chapter 5 or 6. He is the one who alongside the father is to receive worship as the lamb 512 uh, he is the one who is with the father on the throne 513 he is the one whose blood has been shed for the saints 712 he is the enemy of satan 1714 and there's many such expressions in the book of Re- revelation related to the lamb now the bride the bride is actually really kind of introduced here in this text okay Uh, There may be some glimpses of it before in the book of Revelation, but here's where John really begins to elaborate on his uh, metaphor of, of the bride. Now, it shouldn't surprise us too much that he describes the church or his elect people as a bride because, as I mentioned at the top of the message, that is somewhat of a motif that runs throughout Scripture, that God's elect, he loves them as a groom loves his bride. Now, one thing that may not be so obvious to modern readers is that John has been setting us up for this very moment for two chapters. Did you know that? He has. By use of a literary technique called a foil. Do you remember a foil from lit class? What's a foil? It's when you have two characters whose attributes are contrary and they highlight the differences in one another by way of contradistinction. Does that make sense? A foil. So John's been setting this up for us Uh, For a couple chapters now, because who is the foil of the bride of the church in chapter 19? Well, it's the harlot of Babylon that we've been looking at for a couple chapters in 17 and 18. Okay, so all of this time, John has been preparing us for this aha moment where the prostitute of Babylon is switched out. In other words, as a foil with opposite attributes, now the bride is brought to the fore and she has everything that the prostitute did not, which is why she's way more glorious. Okay. Well, um, so again, what, what exactly is a foil? Well, so sometimes in literature, and this is done very frequently, you have two characters that draw each other out. Let me give you a couple examples. So if you're familiar with Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, those two characters are foils of each other. They're not enemies. They don't have to be enemies. It's just two characters with very different attributes. You may remember Romeo and Juliet reading that in high school class. And that is one of Shakespeare's most uh, predominant motifs in Romeo and Juliet is the use of foil. Every single character, for the most part, has a foil. So uh, Romeo, uh, Romeo is foiled by Paris. Juliet is foiled by Rosalind. And you have uh, Benvolio and Tybalt and on and on it goes. Even the house of Capulet and Montague, they're really foils of each other. The whole thing is set up. And so John has been preparing us for this moment now for a couple different chapters. How is the bride a foil of the harlot? Well, let's just think about it. Harlots, what? They never really love. They only use, okay, by definition, prostitute. Right? The bride, though, she's actually in a state of adoration and love with her groom. So we have that by way of foil. The harlot is contractual in her obligations and perverted in her orientation, whereas the bride is covenantal and faithful. You see the foil there? The harlot's Even in a tumultuous relationship with the beast, even the beast, remember, what does the beast do to the harlot? He throws her off at the end. He hates her. And yet the bride here is cherished and loved by her groom, who is Christ and his faithful love. Even down to the color that they're wearing. Do you remember? I talked about this multiple times. What color does the harlot wear? Red. The evil color in the book of Revelation. What color, Gospel Fellowship, does the bride wear in the wedding of the Lamb? What does she wear? Of course she wears white. Because she has been made pure and ready for this very moment. So everything the harlot has, perversity, uh, violence, it is contrasted by the bride in terms of her purity, her sobriety, her readiness, her love here. And so uh, what we see here coming to focus in chapter 19, verse 8 is the garments themselves with which she is adorned. Look at verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Pause right there. Granted to her. She couldn't afford her own wedding dress. Somebody had to buy it. Who bought her wedding dress? God, the Father, Christ, the groom. This is a wedding dress that she would not be able to afford herself. It is, again, granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, in most weddings today, uh, many of the costs of the wedding are supplied, of course, by the father of the groom as well as the, the father of the bride. This is how our tradition goes. And there are certain expectations on either side. We're figuring all this out, the Everhards are, working it out with the stars of who's paying for what in this wedding that's coming up in June. It's very exciting to think about these things. Uh, sometimes a bride does contribute something to her own cost as the groom may, may pay for some of the costs of his own wedding. But I just want you to notice here again, this is very important language in verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and white. This is a wedding dress that she would not be able to afford on her own. Uh, her dress is white and pure because it's been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, notice, you may say, but wait a second, doesn't the next line say, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints? Yes, it does. And that is because uh, our justification in Christ is to inaugurate our sanctification in Christ. There is a pairing between justification and sanctification. You can't rip those apart, right? So our life should comport with what we have in Christ through His. Righteousness imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone. So no wonder that this text, at the same time, and this is not a contradiction, acknowledges that her wedding dress is granted to her or bought for her by the groom, and yet it also is correspondingly fitting to her character, as should a bride's white dress be fitting to her character and her love for her groom in terms of her purity. Right? So this becomes something of a, of a beautiful scene here as the, as the w- white wedding dress is given. Now, I want to go back to just a couple of passages and look up a few things with you in pertinence to the wedding dress. Because as I now know, as the father of the bride, apparently this is a pretty big deal to get the right dress. Okay, we're figuring this out. Go with me in Revelation back to chapter 7, verse 14. I just see, I want you to see the holy laundromat through which this dress is purified. In chapter 7, go back to chapter 7, verse 14. Okay, look at this. I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them whites in the blood of the Lamb. How is it that you have a white robe? Answer, only through the, through the blood of the Lamb. It is by Christ's blood shed for you on Calvary that your stains are washed away. Go back with me again. Let's do another one. Go back with me to our our earlier text in Isaiah chapter 62. I want you to see this as well. This is actually a theme that runs through Scripture. There's a bunch of places where this is referred to. It's very beautiful here to think about this. That God's love for you is described as like unto the adorning of a bride made ready. Go back to 62 Isaiah. Isaiah 62.5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the bride is not the only one joyful on this day. God himself is depicted as having joy. This is the fulfillment of his predestinary grace. Go back one more chapter, Isaiah 61. Same context though, remember. Remember, The numbers in your Bible are artificial. They're placed there later. This whole theme, though, in Isaiah 61 is beautiful. Look at verse 10, 61-10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Therein is that depiction of the beautiful wedding garments being supplied by God Himself. He is the one who supplies our righteous adorning garments. Now this is quite in contradiction to um, what is often seen as another foil in this text, Revelation 19. How else is the bride foiled? Not only by Babylon, but also by the soiled garments that has been mentioned a couple times in Revelation, as with nakedness. Did you know that? That that's a theme too in Revelation? Soiled garments on one hand, nakedness on the other. Let me read a couple of passages. Go back to the book of Revelation with me quick. As for the soiled garments, this comes up as an example in the letter to Sardis. He says, Christ writing to the church of Sardis, way back when we were doing the letters, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Notice the contrast between a bespoiling of the garments and the whiteness that Christ provides possibly very few things could be more embarrassing than soiling your garments on the way to the wedding supper, right? You do not want to show up with soiled garments at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, the only thing that might be more embarrassing than soiled garments is nakedness itself. Look at the letter to Laodicea. This is the same chapter, just a few verses later. Chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. For I say to you, I am rich, this is Christ. Writing to this church, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich with white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Church, uh, you do not want to bespoil your reputation as a believer, either through soiled garments or nakedness on either hand. But no, these things are foiled by the bride and her beautiful garments of white. Now, we've looked at the joy of the wedding. We've looked at the parties pertaining thereunto. Let's finish up here with the invitation to the supper. Okay, we're going to close out with the gospel this morning. Look at verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Okay, so there's a supper that is to come, a supper. Now, when, when my wife and I, she'll be here in the second service, I trust, when we got married, uh, we could not afford a big wedding, uh, big bash afterwards. We couldn't afford a banquet. We couldn't, af- we couldn't afford to have a, a big party and have everyone we love and, and, and feed them all and things like that. And so we just had cake and punch. That's all we had. That's all we needed. And we got the best cake that we could get, and we got a, a couple of cans of juice, and we threw some sherbet in the juice, and we had cake and punch in the church reception hall. And I will tell you to this day, best cake I've ever had in my life. It's all I needed. That's all I needed. Didn't need anything else because I had the woman that I loved more than anything else with me and still have her to this day. 23 years of a beautiful marriage. Very thankful for my wife. Okay? Uh, best cake of my life. But here, uh, there will be no expense spared for you because the Father who is providing for this banquet feast has no lack. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Everything that he makes... All that he has done is done perfectly well with all glory and splendor here. And so this phrase, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, is infinitely understated because words can't convey how beautiful that meal is going to be on that day. Okay? But I do want to draw your attention to the language of invitation here. Notice, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's just pause and think about that invitation just for a moment, okay? In fact, I want, to, uh, I want to make a distinction in your mind between a guest list and an invitation. What's the difference? Well, again, we're learning as we go here. Father of the bride to get married. The guest list is the list of all of the people that the bride and the groom would like to be present with them when they celebrate their big day. So that's the guest list. That's in the mind, it's in the hearts of the very parties themselves. It's who they would like to be with them. The invitations are not exactly the same thing as the guest list, but they go out, don't they? And some people respond positively to the invitation, and they come, and joyfully so. Other people, they, uh, they do not come, and that's totally fine. It's understood, in fact, because some people are busy, some people are unable, some people live far away. Some people have health or travel considerations and they can't make it to the wedding and the bride and the groom, they fully understand that that's the way it works in weddings. In fact, they even tell you, to plan for the fact that about 15% of the people that you invite probably can't make it and that's okay. But here, when, when it speaks of those who are invited to the Lamb, I want to distinguish two categories before you between the eternal guest list of the Father, which is His predestining grace through election, and the invitation of gospel preaching. Can you, can you entertain that distinction just for a moment? The eternal guest list is in the mind and the heart of the Father. And it cannot be thwarted because everybody that the Father calls through His predestining electing grace will come, and none that He does not invite in that way. And so this is described in various terms and in various words throughout the Scriptures. In the book of Revelation, we often see predestining, electing grace in the form of what is called the book of life. We've seen the book of life, and we're going to see it again in Revelation. There is a a, a very true way to conceive about salvation, biblically in its moorings, scriptural in its orientation, in which it is established, and definitively so, that all that the Father predestines, to come to His Son will infallibly come. Okay, Predestination is a biblical doctrine. Election is a biblical doctrine. Whether it is called by either of those names or it's simply talked about as the Father choosing us before we ever choose Him, uh, this is the eternal guest list and it is in the mind of the Father. And here's the problem. You and I, we do not have privilege or prerogative to look at that list. We don't know who's on the eternal list okay because these things are determined between the persons of the trinity before the world began Ephesians 1 Romans 8 Romans 9 so what do we do well we invite anyone who's listening to hear and so there out goes the invitation cards to the wedding itself do i know who is predestined of course not i'm a mortal i wasn't there before the foundations of the world and so what I do is, I, as a preacher, we call people to come and to believe. We invite people to come and to believe the gospel. Even as I am inviting you right now in this moment, uh, with my words and this text before us, I am telling you that there is an offer to you that is legitimate, that God has provided for you in Christ everything you need in order to have the total remittance of all of your sin your guilt and your shame put away from you, not only now, but for eternity to come, that invitation is legitimate in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross of Calvary. And so I say to you, come to Christ. Uh, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I don't have the power to compel as the Holy Spirit does, but all of the elect in Christ Jesus will have their hearts turned by the gracious power of the Holy Spirit, and they will come. And this is why Jesus says very famously, many are called, but few are chosen. The eternal guest list of the father is secure. Even as even now, the gospel invitation goes out to the ends of the earth. If you don't know Christ today, please come to him by repentance and faith. He is sufficient to provide for you the garments that you need for this wedding day. And with